All right, so we're on 24. Uh, the question about the office of a priest. Last week we were talking about a prophet. Um, number 24. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. How about a little old-timey sermon illustration about my favorite king, Cyrus, king of Persia, Cyrus the Great. Um, have you guys ever read Xenophon's Cyrus the Great? It's the best book on leadership ever. When people say that they've read The Art of War, I just scoff. I'm like, that's cute. Xenophon mentions an Armenian prince taken captive together with his queen by Cyrus, king of Persia. When asked if he desired the restoration of his liberty, his kingdom, and his queen, he answered, As for my liberty and my kingdom, I value them not. But if my blood would redeem my wife, I would cheerfully give it. Cyrus generously restored him all. When asked what she thought of Cyrus's person, the queen replied, I really did not observe him. My mind was so occupied with the man who offered to give his life for my ransom that I could think of no other. Jesus Christ has actually done what this prince offered to do and has abundantly exceeded that generous action. May we feel a similar regard for him so as to overlook all other objects. What a I'll, wonderful little story. I like Cyrus even more now. There you go. I feel like the real was great. Indeed, indeed. So, let's talk. We talked a little bit two weeks ago about the history and function. In fact, a little jot, jottings are still there uh, of prophets, priests, and kings. Um, we talked about the background of priests uh, with the Aaronic priesthood. We talked a little bit about Melchizedek. We'll read those passages today. But what was the purpose of a priest, broad strokes, in the Old Testament, and why was a priest needed? So that they could talk to God. People could talk to the priest, and the priest talked to God. Now, why couldn't people go directly to God? Because Jesus hadn't come yet. Okay. They would burn up. Okay, why is that? Uh, because you don't like to look at God. You don't like to be in his presence unless he tells you. Well, I guess they were needed because God prescribed the way they would be worshiping him, and that was something he prescribed that there's this person who offers up the incense and who does all the work in the tabernacle of the temple, and you can't just do it whichever way you want, you have to do it according to the prescribed method. Okay. And as I recall, King Saul tried to do it his way, and he was told. You're not going to be king anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so certainly it was required. Uh, Lisa's saying because of God's holiness, we couldn't come into His presence. Uh, and of course, all of the other religions, polytheistic and monotheistic around Israel, would have had priests as well. It was a very common thing. So perhaps God is using sort of the familiar grid to people to reveal himself. Or maybe all the other nations were just onto something or copying Israel to some degree. You want some type of leader? Like, I feel like if you're practicing something as a group, there's someone that's going to be 
hey, you're the one we come to for questions, you're the one we come to for leaders, and so ultimately, like, Jesus is going to fill that role of priest, but while that's not happening, there would be a human... Okay, so kind of to create order in the worship, and, and uh, of course there has to be a sacrificial system because of the separation between God and man, right? Which is our sin, the gulf that we can't cross. And it would also be that the priesthood is supposed to model what's to come. Like, the functions that the priests are fulfilling would be things that Jesus fulfills later. Right. Now, how do you think it would feel to worship God this way? Through someone else offering the actual worship in the form of the incense in the sanctuary, in the form of the blood in the Holy of Holies sprinkled on the the horns of the, or on the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. You never really see any of that. Like, the, the private mm-hmm. things. You would see, like, the, the preparing of the animals, right, in a certain court. But you wouldn't see a lot of it, and so I don't know that you'd feel like you were very close to God. I think you'd feel very distant. Like, I'm not able to even interact with God. Now, while the priests were, say, in the sanctuary offering the incense, the people would all be gathered around praying the same prayers. But, yeah, you're not able to come right up to the kind of presence of God and stare into the, the actual glory of God or, or encounter Him uh, just face to face. In fact, last week we talked about how huge a deal it was that Moses talked to God face to face, and there was this crazy prophecy that later on another guy would come who could do the same thing. So yeah, there would certainly be a sense of distance. I think there might also be a far greater sense of God's holiness, uh, a far greater sense of, of God's majesty, that his transcendence would be... I mean, now people often approach God almost flippantly. Uh, you often hear people, you know, when I pray, I, I just, you know, talk to the big guy in the sky, or, you know, and there's, there's you know, pet names I have for God, and, and, and it, it can become too informal. So I think that maybe uh, being a part of uh, the, the sacrificial system in Israel, with the intermediary of the, the priesthood, might emphasize God's hugeness and holiness. Uh, and then, even in that, you would have reminders of God's imminence and His um, love and mercy, right? In the very fact that He permits us to uh, make atonement. Uh, he doesn't have to. Roger. Well, I have a question. If if priests aren't needed now after Jesus came, why do some Christian traditions have priests? Okay, well, the Roman Catholic priesthood, uh, we believe, is a misunderstanding of the role of clergy, that you have to go through this person in order to get to the church, and the church is the vehicle to bring you into God's presence. Uh, and that tradition and similar traditions have other kind of, in my, in my view and in Luther's view, I'm, uh, he thought it first and I'm thinking it after him, um, it, there's kind of this misunderstanding of uh, hedges almost, of not in a charismatic way, but protecting God. Uh, so I go to Mary 
so Mary can go to Jesus, so Jesus can go to the Father, rather than saying there's one intermediary and I go right to the Father via Jesus' blood. Uh, and, and that is kind of the, the core of that priesthood. Now, there are other traditions, for example, the Anglican tradition, where they don't have that view, but they still call the clergy priests. Uh, and that would go back to just the English word. Priest comes from the word presbyter, which is the word for elder. Uh, and so in, during the Reformation, they said, you know, they were making some compromises so that people would stop, like, killing each other and deposing each other and, and uh, you know, trying to take the throne from each other and just kind of live together. Uh, so the Book of Common Prayer comes, and, and calling the, the clergy priests was part of that. Uh, I know a number of uh, Episcopal priests who don't like the term and will call themselves pastor, rector, anything but priest, uh, and and don't object, but kind of uh, bristle a little bit if you, if you call them that. But yeah, so there, that's a very different view uh, from an evangelical view of approaching God yourself. Uh, and I think there's strengths to both because in the, the, the understanding that you go through the church, it's a reminder that if you are saved, you have been saved into a church, that we're not doing this alone, that, you know, Confession's not supposed to be some prayer mumbled into your pillow at 3 a.m., completely separated from everyone else in the church. And, and so it's a, there, there's a strength there, but I think that the weakness may outweigh it because then your relationship with God is not your own. As Baptists, we have uh, one of our core beliefs that sets us apart. It's called soul liberty or liberty of conscience. And it's the notion that you stand before God for your beliefs, and your life, and what you've, um, how, how the fruit that's been born in your heart, not for someone else's. You don't say, oh, no, I'm with them. In fact, it gets to the point in the Middle Ages where there's a, the doctrine of vicarious faith, that it, you don't even have to know what you believe about Jesus. You just say, oh, yeah, I believe what the church teaches. Well, what is that? Eh, whatever they say, I'm good with. And that that would then count uh, for your merit, and you would be able to stand before God based on that. That's a, a very kind of Old Testament-y view of things, and as we're going to talk about this week and next, I mean, it's a perfect week as we start Holy Week to be talking about Jesus uh, as priest. We're going to see that we've been freed from that kind of uh, having to go via human intermediaries, and now we have more freedom to just come to our God because we have a great Savior who's a great high priest. Um, so here's a, a Alexander's White's, and I keep on quoting Alexander White because he wrote the Catechism on the Catechism and wrote the Commentary on the Catechism, which both of which are, are uh, free online. You can get uh, on CCEL, which is the Christian Classics ethereallibrary.org, CCEL.org. Um, you can find all sorts of cool commentaries and and works on that. Check out the, the commentary on the catechism sometime. It's just super great. Um, in fact, that's the, the subtitle on, on the first page. It's like, A Commentary on the Catechism by Alexander White. It's super great. Uh, and he says this, A priest is a public person who in the name of the guilty deals with an offended God for reconciliation by sacrifice, which he offers to God upon an altar that he may be accepted. I'll read that one more time because there's lots of prepositional phrases in there. A priest is a public person who, in the name of the guilty, deals with an offended God for reconciliation 
by sacrifice, which he offers to God upon an altar, that he may be accepted. And built into that definition is the answer to the question, why is it needed? Because God is an offended God. Uh, And what is the purpose? To make reconciliation. Now, what, what is reconciliation? Coming back together. Okay, yeah, so two who are estranged? To the, yes, to the original whatever relationship. That's the word I was looking for. The fixing of a relationship where two are apart to bring them together. That was the role of the priest. And like Aaron said, the way the priesthood is set up in the Old Testament is foreshadowing. It's painting a slow picture of Jesus that then we get to see realized in the actual person of Jesus when he arrives. Reconciliation then becomes the core of what Jesus came to do. I came to seek and save the lost. There were those who are far off from God. Jesus came and said, I'm going to come to me. I'll bring you to him. Uh, What set priests apart from everyone else in the Old Testament? Their clothes. Okay. Hold on, let me... Use the meat of my hand to erase that. And then, right. Uh, genealogy. Uh, uniform. As I recall, they had a very specific dress code in Leviticus, didn't they? Mm-hmm. What else? You mentioned Leviticus. That's from the word Levi, meaning having to do with the priestly tribe. What is it full of? Priest. <laughs> priest? <laughs> but what what about the priests largely? Why is it that you get kind of bored reading Leviticus? Rules. Rules, right? Rules and regulations set them apart. Um, rules about everything. I mean, you, you, you can't think of an area of life that wasn't regulated for the priesthood. What else? Something Something big. If you were going to be a priest... Yes, you had to be of the right genealogy. Yes, you had to follow the rules. Sure, you had to wear the clothes. But did everyone who fit in that category get to serve as priest? Why not? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, because you asked the question. Didn't they roll lots and whoever came up with Well, yeah, they would, they would rotate who was able to go and serve in the temple at a given time, but ideally everyone would have a turn doing that. Did they have to train for something? Say it. For a certain of time? Say it out loud. Go ahead. They didn't know how to read. I don't know. People They would all learn how to read if they had a, you know, the standard religious education. It had to do with, and this is maybe the, the biggest picture and one of the biggest beefs often people have with the Old Testament. Without blemish, right? You there are you read in Leviticus. It's like you got a club foot, you're out. You got a weird mole, you're out. I mean, like anything you can think of that makes someone not physically perfect would disqualify them, right? And we often read that and say that's messed up. But the reason was, just like the dietary laws and a lot of these Old Testament ceremonial things, it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality and the emphasis on the priest and the sacrifice both being without blemish is vital to our understanding of what Jesus 
comes to do. And so that, that's a big, I mean, I, I think, you know, we sometimes call like a zit a blemish. You could still have zits and be a priest, but you couldn't have, uh, you couldn't be crippled or blind or whatever. There's like a whole chapter about like how crushed your testicles can be and you're still a priest. I mean, it's just, it's just you're reading, you know, you've read Leviticus and you've gone, huh? Why is the Bible like spending valuable ink on this stuff? It's because it has to do with Jesus as the high priest and how it's, uh, that role is foreshadowed. Um, so Jesus has the genealogy. Hey, we can even, I hadn't thought about the, the clothing, the uniform, but yeah, he, he wears spiritually the, the spotless, clean linen. Uh, he is ceremonially and in every way spiritually unblemished. He's without sin. So he can be the ultimate high priest. Because what's the first thing the priest always does in preparing to do the, the uh, ceremonies and rituals to expiate the sins of the people? Deal with his own sin. That limits how effective he can be. Jesus has no sin of his own. But wasn't Jesus a descendant of Judah and not Levi? Yeah, we'll get to that. In fact, let's just talk about it now. So when we were talking about Jesus being uh, a prophet, there was no particular tribe. Prophets came from all over Israel. When we talk next week, the week after, because next week is Easter, about Jesus being a king, he's from the right tribe, right? The tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. So he fits all that. What about being a priest? Because like Roger mentioned, when Saul, who was of what tribe? Um, Benjamin. Benjamin offers up the sacrifice because he's like, I can't wait any longer. Uh, he's rebuked. Because at least he should have waited for uh, the, the judge, Samuel, to come and do it. And yet, we recognize that Jesus is fulfilling all of these checkboxes. Aaron? Because Mary is from that tribe. Because her... Oh, no, wait. No, Mary also, it seems, is from... But Zechariah was from... Right. So, okay. that doesn't That's grandfather true. Jesus in. Yeah. And only great-nephews Jesus in. Great-nephews. I feel like I knew this at one point. We talked about it uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> Everybody open to Hebrews chapter 6. There you go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6. We'll actually read this passage, uh, which we didn't read when we talked about it last time. Man, I've got so many ripped pages in this Bible, it bums me out. We're going to read from 6.18 to 7.3. Who is willing to do that? Let's, no, let's start earlier because that starts with God did this. God did what? Go back to 16. 16 through 7, 3. I can do it. Let's hear it. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
First, his name means King of Righteousness, then also King of Salem, means King of Peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So if we wanted to look at uh, Genesis 14, in fact, let me just read that real quick, the actual account, comes after one of my favorite Old Testament stories, Lot's kidnapped and uh, the fighting men, the trained fighting men grab their swords, catch up to uh, the kings of the valley, and it's a rescue mission. Uh, Genesis 14, 17 to 21 is, is where we're looking after that battle. Uh, after Abram returned from defeating, holy smokes, Kedorliamor. Uh, <laughs> after Abram returned from defeating Kedorliamor and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so the story here is... That's it. I mean, he comes out of nowhere. He kind of goes back into nowhere. He has two titles that are given to him. And you kind of wonder, it, it doesn't come up a ton in the rest of the Old Testament. Like, what is this doing in the Old Testament? If we go to Psalm 110, we see another little reference here. And this is the one that Hebrews is actually quoting. Um, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. By the way, that's something that Jesus makes much of. That David says, the Lord says of my Lord, how can the Messiah be the son of David and also the Lord of David? And Jesus makes a case for his divinity. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Quote, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we have this messianic prophecy uh, housed then in a psalm of David about how the Messiah, the Lord of David, will be a priest forever in the order not of Levi and Aaron, but of Melchizedek. Now what, what does um, the author of Hebrews make a big deal about here? Several things. First of all, giving a tenth of everything. So remember we talked about seminal headship and how in Adam we were kind of there because we all came from him, that we sinned in him. Well, that's the same view here, that even Levi and Aaron, the first high priest, are present in Abraham, or Abram at the time, and therefore tithed to this other priesthood, this greater priesthood. So he, he's giving him, and don't miss the connection of bread and wine coming out in, in this sort of uh, festal ceremony. Um, that, that's not mentioned here in Hebrews, but I think we'd, we'd probably be missing something big if we didn't point that out. Uh, and then he, he looks at the, the name Melchizedek from Melech and Sedek, the king of righteousness. And that's, that's what the literal meaning of his name, but his title is the king of Salem. Salem means 
peace. So he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, and he is a high priest here. And then, and, and this is something that you've got to be careful when you do yourself. Make sure you're following a biblical example. But he's, he says, he's without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Now, or do we assume that Melchizedek is still walking around today somewhere? No, what he's doing is saying this priest from this priesthood doesn't have some big genealogy that shows that he is in a priestly line. We don't have his mother or father. We don't have how many days he lived and then he died. He just shows up. So in the same way, Jesus comes a priest on his own authority, not necessarily even tied to that Melchizedek earthly-wise, but in the same way as that greater priesthood just appears and Abram says, oh, you're a priest of God Most High and tithes to him. Jesus comes outside of the Aaronic priesthood being actually antecedent of all of what was pictured for us in the Aaronic priesthood. Roger. Where is this Salem place? Because I'm trying to get in. Jerusalem. And this guy being king and priest also then foreshadows for us Jesus. It's, this is some of my favorite stuff to think about, and some really interesting stuff has been written about it. Some of it a little wonky, but it's fun to, to you know, just let your mind go wild, and what are some of the ramifications of Jesus being this high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then go back to that story and, and start mining it for messianic stuff. Uh, when we get to Jesus, he is not the right tribe to be priest after the order of Aaron, but he is a priest forever. And again, that means that it's a different kind of priest priesthood temporally. What happens to the Aaronic priesthood? They died. Weren't they like almost eliminated when the Romans came in? Yeah, I mean, all of Israel was decimated. You, if you know, you know the last name Cohen? That's probably someone in the priestly tribe. Uh, in fact, they've done genealogical studies, and they, they call it, for whatever reason, the Moses gene, but people have this, this gene. Uh, the word Kohen, Kohen in Hebrew, means priest. And so, I mean, they're around. They are wiped out, but the priesthood can't exist as the priesthood without the temple. And so the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, that's all she wrote for the priesthood. So even... Uh, you know, this Annas and Caiaphas are among the very last of the high priests. It goes away. Jesus' priesthood never goes away. Not even like the, the need for faith and the need for hope will pass away, right? But Jesus' priesthood never goes away. And you say, hold on a minute. If priesthood is about covering up sin and reconciling God and man, shouldn't we get to a point where, okay, we're, we're done reconciled and no one's sinning anymore. What about Jesus' priesthood? Why is it eternal? Uh, well, the Old Testament priesthood pointed forward to one event, and that is Christ entering into God's presence with his blood. And this is a passage I'm going to be uh, reading and, and preaching on next week at 8.30, when the sun is rising, you know, um, <laughs> in this very room, uh, because I think it's just a wonderful Easter morning passage. Uh, but let's, let's compare here 
the Aaronic priesthood, I'm not going to make a chart. I was going to uh, pretend I'm making a chart with two columns. One of them, the priesthood of Aaron. One of them, the priesthood of Jesus. Uh, and Aaron, I knew you were going to start making a chart. Aaron and Jesus or Aaron and Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I know. And he came and died for your sins. Uh, so the Aaronic priesthood is made up of men, right? They're mere men. They're, they're all unblemished and they're all, you know, perfectly able bodied, but they're still men. They get old, they die, they're mortal. They sin, etc. The priesthood of Christ is a priesthood of God and man. So if you are reconciling two groups and you belong to both, you can best reconcile those two groups. God and man, he is an eternal bridge between humans and the divine being. So that makes it a superior priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was outwardly holy, so they had to, I mean, if you were in gross, horrible sin, ideally you would be deposed from the priesthood of Aaron, although we read about a number of people throughout the scriptures who continue to get away with it until God takes them out of the equation. But that is a, a uh, outward requirement, much like Jesus says the Pharisees, very proud of their uh, righteousness, were only outwardly righteous. They were like a tomb that had been whitewashed on the outside. Christ is totally holy. So his thoughts are holy. His intentions and motives are holy. His words are holy. His actions, everything about him. <clears throat> and so you have a priest then who is not first making uh, expiation for his own sins and then dealing with the sins of the people, but can actually take upon his shoulders all the sins of the people and that frees him to be a far more effective priest. Uh, the Aaronic priesthood was by birth. You had to be of the right lineage. The priesthood of Christ is eternal, and it is by God's decree. God says you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the Father uh, and the, the will, the harm, harmonic will of the Trinity declares that the Son is a, an eternal priest. And the Aaronic priesthood, this is the most important one and what Hebrews 9 emphasizes, temporarily covers sin. That's all it can do. You're kicking the can down the road one more year. Uh, we're all okay for now with God. It's tenuous, but we've got this structure in place and we can keep on serving him and being his people Christ does what? Removes sin, which then makes it permanent, not temporary. That is a very stark difference between two priesthoods, even though the former was a picture for us of the latter. Uh, when we look at Hebrews 9, I don't want to steal my own thunder from next week, but let me read verses 13 and 14. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? 
this is the answer to Anselm's question, Cordeus Homo, why the God-man? Because there's no other way in which your sins can be removed. Only by uh, a savior, a substitute who is God and man. So in the human sacri- rather in the human priesthood, you need three things. First, you need the right priest. So there is a situation called Korah's rebellion in the Old Testament. Does anyone remember that? Didn't the earth open up and swallow them whole? But why? Because Korah tried to take the um, religion away from Aaron. Basically, yeah, a group of people said, you know what, let's be democratic about this. You're no better than me. You're not better than me. Um, that didn't sound Boston-y at all, but I meant for it to. Uh, and they started trying to take that role on themselves. And yeah, literally, God's like, and swallows them up in the earth. Uh, so you need the right priest. And that would be determined by all of these things that we've already laid out. You need the right altar. And we see that in uh, throughout the Old Testament, the high places being condemned. These are sometimes places that had been used for pagan worship, now being used to worship God. And sometimes these are just places that were dedicated to the worship of God before the institution of the temple. Whatever the case, this is uh, not the right place. It's not the right altar. It's not the right sanctuary. And then finally, you need the right sacrifices. And we see that clearly in the uh, situation with Nadab and Abihu. Who, other than Roger, remembers that story? I always remembered after you saying it. Nadab and Abihu were sons of... They, the ones who took they the... were barbecued. They were... Say again. Did they, were the ones who took the wrong... Like they took more than they were supposed to for themselves? No, you're thinking of Hophni and Phinehas. Oh. No, they had strange fire and then God yeah. barbecued them. Right, so Nadab and Abihu, who are the sons of Aaron, uh, have offered strange fire. So they, they said, well, we have the way we're supposed to offer the sacrifice, but, you know, this has been going on now for, like, decades. So let's change it up and have the contemporary service. And uh, in doing so, they so offended God uh, that he roasted them. So, yeah, that's, the, that's definitely uh, a reminder that the right sacrifice. So the right priest, the right altar, the right sacrifice. Jesus priesthood so sets him apart that he embodies all three of these things. He is the priest. He is the altar. He is the sacrifice. And these things are laid out in scripture. He's our all in all. He's everything that you need to be reconciled to God. Jesus alone is what you need. And so we don't need a human priesthood. We don't need uh, uh, sacerdotal uh, rituals that are going to top us off and make us good enough for the moment. But wait, what if I die with a mortal sin on my conscience? Then I'll have to burn for a while. No. Jesus said it, was, it is finished, and it is finished. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 9.26 uh, for kind of a summary of this. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. This is, let me, let me go back a little bit of context. Uh, 23. 
It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we have the spotless, unblemished priest offering himself as the unblemished sacrifice. And that is what was being pointed at all along. Jesus, the suffering servant, Jesus, the great high priest. John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb, but who is qualified then to take this lamb's blood and offer it before God? Only Jesus. And so he, in Hebrews 9, is said to go into the heavenly sanctuary and offer his own blood to God in the actual sanctuary of which the physical earthly sanctuary was just a a copy. And no, he wasn't being platonic there, forms and shadows. We have an understanding that the physical sanctuary was a physical, visible representation of the true way in which we approach God. And you know what? I don't think I'm going to be able to preach on this next week without just kind of repeating all this stuff. So I'll come up with something different. <laughs> yes, Roger. Um, I think it's interesting that it's uh, um, John the Baptist who kind of anoints Jesus there. When isn't John the Baptist a pre- kind of the son of a, two priests? Boom. Oh, there you go. I had never thought of that before. Very, very good. Yeah, designating the, the lamb, which is uh, a major part of being a priest, setting aside. And, and of course, on, on like the... So, so think about like the Day of Atonement, right? You have the blood, which is shed for the people's sins. What does Yom Kippur literally mean? Day of covering. Day of covering. To kafir is to cover. So this is the Day of Covering. We're covering over the sins and it will, that covering will expire next year. We'll have to cover over the sins again. And in covering over them again, we will buy another year. And so covering, 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 when Jesus comes, rather than covering again, it's like you paint over something so many times. Or you keep putting up, you know, dreadful wallpaper, but, you know, it, it's uh, updated every year. And finally, you're like, this just isn't working, and you rip it all off. And that's what Jesus does. He, he removes the sin. And that is uh, the priesthood of Jesus. Would a priest be anointed by another priest in the Old Testament too? Yeah, they're all, that, that's actually laid out in Hebrews 9 as well, the way that the, everything in the sanctuary and even the people themselves were sprinkled with blood. Because John the Baptist was like super priest there. Kind of. Super priest? He was the son of Elizabeth and the son of Zechariah. Now, we already determined Elizabeth's not in that line. Oh. Right? That's what you said. Elizabeth is in that line. Well, then why isn't Mary if they're cousins? Because they're cousins. They're not sisters. Or they, we don't even know that they're cousins. They're relatives. Okay. Uh, so in his human nature, Jesus is the sacrifice. In his divine nature, he's the altar upon which the sacrifice is offered. So he sanctifies the sacrifice... And 
in him it has infinite value and efficacy, unlike the limited efficacy of the uh, Aaronic priesthoods, sacrifices, and offerings. Let's flip one chapter over to Hebrews 10. Does anyone still have that open and can read for us verses 5 through 7? Sure. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. At the moment of Christ's incarnation, then, the sacrifice is laid on the altar. And at the cross is offered up. Uh, and during the silent day of, of Holy Saturday is actually brought into the presence of God and, and the blood offered in the heavenly sanctuary. Let's stop there. And uh, I, I think we'll, we'll pick up with it in two weeks. Maybe a question to take with you and kind of uh, entertain through Holy Week, and uh, until the next time we meet, now and again, what does this sacrifice save us from? Um, a podcast I listened to, The White Horse Inn, the producer went out at a Christian Booksellers Association gathering and asked this question, what does the sacrifice of Jesus save us from? And the answers given made me want to get into a coffin and pull the top on. Uh, and be lowered into the nice warm ground. Uh, but we'll see what we come up with. Uh, and maybe jot something down. What, what is it that Jesus' sacrifice saves us from? And how does that affect the way we proclaim the gospel? And how we offer the inclusion in that sacrifice to everyone around us by, by grace through faith. Uh, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the priesthood of Jesus. We know that no human priesthood anywhere could take away our sins. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, but only uh, by your grace cover them for a time. And we are thankful that all of those, uh, all the whole Old Testament economy of grace was pointing forward to the coming of Jesus, the removing of our sins, the washing clean not covering up, but washing clean so that while we are all blemished, we stand now before you spotless because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, what an honor it is. We pray that we would uh, remember your holiness and your majesty uh, as it was uh, clearly proclaimed and portrayed in the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, but Lord, that we would also remember that we have the great privilege of coming to you by one mediator, uh, coming to you, not shaking and, and, and in terror, thinking we may be burned up by you, the consuming fire, but knowing that we've been washed clean and made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.